All right, as if COVID didn't give us enough to think about, people who are entering colleges or thinking about applying or have had a, a harrowing experience and wanna share, well, today is the topic for you. I have a college uh, admissions process topic that really needs to be addressed. And I have here uh, education, educational counselor, Deborah Cooney, who is a counselor based here in Hawaii. She advises students across the world, United States and everywhere as a former educational, uh, sorry, international school counselor. She's worked directly with hundreds of high school students and as a former international admissions reader for a prestigious university, she's read over a thousand application files and Wow, um, this is a very uh, special treat to really get the inside of somebody who knows the works and as a mom with uh, college kids and people in the process of, of applying. And of course I met her from, uh, what actually was it Hong Kong? Yes, and so the international context and coming from a parent perspective and coming from the educational industry uh, worldwide, I think it's really, really important to talk about this. So Deborah, thank you for coming on K2H to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you, Crystal, for uh, having me. Um, I'm excited to be here and just to talk about uh, this topic that's dear to my heart. Um, I just, it's just um, incredible, like this year uh, with COVID and how everyone has been affected around the world and particularly students and uh, specifically high school and college kids, you know, they're going through a lot. And then um, as they're in school, they're also trying to plan for the future. But how do you plan for the future right now? It's quite, um, quite challenging. And as as an um, educational uh, counselor, um, it is, you know, my my role to guide students and to help them kind of navigate this and figure out, um, you know, what they want to do, where they want to go. But even as a professional, we don't even quite know exactly. where where things are going at the moment. And then, and what we like, what was happening in March compared to now, and what they predict in 2021, it's just changed so quickly. Yeah, so, yeah. Don't, don't so much uncertainty yeah. and so many changes and so many issues to address in this process of um, applying. So maybe we'll break it down into several parts. Uh, but first, maybe um, let's talk about how oh God, this year, I mean, you know, it's <laughs> so crazy. But being at the end of the year, um, let's address how COVID and Black Lives Matter, I think those are two major, major issues that have impacted the kind of college application process. Uh, obviously, everything is online now. Uh, a lot of uh, application process where they previously had interviews uh, had to be addressed in a different way. And particularly the Black Lives Matter, I wanted to address because what does that mean for people who are applying under the idea of diversity? Has this kind of um, benefited them or has it been kind of actually level, did it really level the playing field and you know, all that great heavy stuff. So mm. let's let's talk about that first. What do you think? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really um, interesting um, point to, to bring up. Um, you know, actually I think in, in the higher education world and um, in college admissions, they have for decades tried to support um, support everyone from all different races and colors and different backgrounds. Um, you know, this is something that universities have have tried to do, and um, you know, this goes into into um, 
you know, it's a very deep topic, but it, you know, you're talking about um, race, you're talking about privilege, you're talking about uh, students with means and students without um, means. And so um, like this year in particular is interesting because of the, um, uh, as, as everyone has heard, like there's over 600 colleges that now um, do not require the SAT or ACT, for example. And um, that actually is, is because of, you know, COVID and students not having the opportunity to actually be tested. But at the same time, there's another underlying reason for that, because if you get rid of the testing uh, that they have, there's, there's evidence out there that the testing actually shows that students with means score better and that students without, you know, or they're from an, uh, a poor background that they aren't able to score well because they don't have tutors, they don't have the resources, they, don't, they might not have a computer to get online and, and practice. And so colleges have always tried to kind of level that out. And then this year in particular, yeah, but like so that. so now we're talking about SATs. You know, I was just talking uh, talking to a friend's daughter who, you know, she's only a, a, a an entering junior, um, I guess, this year, and she says she's already taken a couple of SAT tests. And and so a lot of people, even with this new kind of uh, lack of um, you know it, priority or or lessening it, I guess maybe not the word, uh, depending on where you're situated. What I'm trying to say is, it seems like the people who have access and who have that privilege, like you mentioned, will want to emphasize the SAT because that will help them. Whereas the ones who obviously lack that uh, access will say, "Hey, this is great. I don't need to take it, so I don't need it." But so does this almost complicate things even more because you have that choice. You know, people who have the, the means will say, hey, I want to take it because I want to show how good I am, really. And then what does that do for colleges? Yes. And this is something that the, um, you know, admissions offices across the country, they, they, they're like right, right now they're gathering data because this is one of the, the first years that the majority of the schools have said SAT, ACT optional. Um, and so they're testing. They're testing to see if they allow students without test scores in, um, you know, how will that affect like how they do in college, like their, you know, their retention rate and are they able to, to succeed? So um, for example, I actually attended a talk um, last week with um, the admissions directors of Tufts, Boston University and Northeastern, and they revealed to counselors some of their statistics. Um, and they said they were excited to get the information. And so like, they said, okay, interestingly, in the early early admissions round, which I'm not sure if all the readers understand that, but you know, in the college admissions process, students can apply in an early, um, have an earlier deadline, and then they have a regular deadline. But in the early round, they saw an increase um, of about 12 to 17 percent of applications went up in the early round, and then um, what they noticed was about. 60% um, of the students applied without test scores mm -hmm. and 40%, this is just, you know, an average, but 40% applied with that's this year okay. under the COVID situation. Cause a lot of kids couldn't apply. So in that group, you're going to have a mixture of 
students with means, but maybe they just couldn't take a test. Like I've had students who signed up, tried to take the test three times and had the test canceled on them. So they just oh. gave up. Oh. So they just gave up and said, I'm not taking it. I'm going to apply without scores. Wow. Right. So, you know, and then, so about 60% of the students had, um, didn't have scores this year and they applied and the admissions director said that they evaluated the students just as, I mean, equally with the students with, with test scores. And then they admitted the students. It was this, it was about the same 60% applied without test scores, about 60% got in without test scores in the early round. Okay. Does that make, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, they said that they were, they were tracking that they said, um, yeah. And so, so, and then 40%, let's say applied with test scores and they admitted about 40%. So it didn't give that 40% an extra leverage for having that extra SAT? No. No, according to these three admissions directors at these two universities, you know, and their institutions, they evaluated the students equally with test scores and without. If it is really genuinely equally, then why is it that so many people are still kind of like, if they have the means is to encourage their students, their kids to, um, to, to take the test still, you know? Well, I think, yeah, I don't know what will happen in the future, but I think for this year, um, a lot of students, you know, that with means and have been studying and working so hard, they want, I've had a lot of students, they want to take the test. They've been practicing. Right. You know, in a way, it's kind of like a rite of passage taking the SAT when you're in high school. And it's like, well, I've been practicing and I'm kind of wanting to just like know where I am and if I can do well. And if I can do well, why not? A lot of my students have said, I want to take it. Okay, but maybe the students you are addressing tend to be more on the high achieving side because there's a lot of people, especially in Hawaii, where I'm not saying that the level is necessarily lower, but there is a larger percentage of students who either don't have the means or the ambition to go to an Ivy League, and they don't really see this as, um, and you know, they see it as a very stressful part of their life to have to do these kind of big comprehensive tests. And honestly, a lot of kids don't do well in these types of testing environments, right? So it doesn't necessarily reflect their potential. And so this exactly. kind of leads me to another question is this idea of how one educates, how one learns. Do you think that needs to change now? You know, in light of everything that's kind of spinning and pushing us into questioning um, how institutions work now, do you think that we need to redefine how one becomes educated? Oh, wow. Well, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, again, you know, despite COVID, you know, I think this is a, this is a conversation in, in education that, um, you know, teachers and, and, and educators have debated for, for years, for, for decades on what's the best way to, to educate students. I mean, you have the way that they do it in the West uh, compared to the students in the East, um, like in China and Japan and Korea. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, how what what's what is the best way? But um, I think that you're right. I mean, I think educators know this and um, colleges are trying to move away from a lot of colleges are trying to move away from mandatory SAT and ACT testing, because I think they know that it's not an indication necessarily of how a student will um, perform in college. 
And um, the, the, the challenge for admissions is that, you know, for example, the University of California, they had record shattering applications this year. They had over 250,000 applications. Which is like what is normal. How well, it's, it's about a 15% increase this year. Huh. Um, and, but they got, they, they, there's many factors. They say, oh, it's because they got rid, uh, the board voted this year that they would no longer use SAT and ACT to evaluate applications. But from the admissions office too, it's like, wow. I mean, if they have to read thousands and thousands of applications, normally in you know, at many universities that the, the test score gives them something to like, kind of gauge the student and make a quick read, you know, make a quick decision and, and read. They look at the GPA, they look at the test score. And of course they're gonna look at teacher evaluations and essays, but at least it gives them like a ballpark. But now the fact that they got rid of the test score and they have to evaluate students equally, it'll be interesting to see, see the outcome. And University of California hasn't shared that yet. They're, yeah. they're right in the process right now of evaluating applicants for this class. So. It'll be interesting to see how they do that. Yeah, I'm still not convinced that they can evaluate it equally. Like if you're taking out the SAT, what are they putting in to replace that aspect? Are they kind of adding more concentration on the essay, for example, or do they, are they looking more for that kind of creative element that wasn't so kind of, you know, uh, considered before, or I don't know. I mean, is there something else? So I'm just trying to think like people who are listening, and if you are just tuning in, we are talking about the kind of the harrowing process of college applications in light of COVID and Black Lives Matter and all that stuff. So um, yeah, how do, um, how do we work around this? Like, what are ways, <sighs> I, not to oversimplify, like saying, okay, well, what are some tips? How do we, how do we understand what they want and because of these new changes without the SAT, how do students strategize this process? Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, if you can imagine, if there's no test score, what, what is in the file? There's the GPA of the student, where they went to, where they attended high school, their kind of their background, their, 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 their background. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of data in there that tells admissions offices about them. Like for example, just even your mailing address, like where you live, if you think about it, like they, they can, your zip code tells admissions too, like what, what region you're from, what neighborhood, right? There, there's a lot of in, interesting data that, that is provided to admissions. Um, they, they know the, what teachers say about the student they can read what the student has written because there's always essays or little short answer prompts that students must, must fill in and write about themselves. They have an activity section that they list about like what they've done in high school. But you know, back to your question about it being you know, a fair playing field, um, you know, as a 17 year old, this is all new to them, this whole application process. And sometimes when they even have great things to say, they may not know how how to put it on paper. And yeah. so again, it's like the students that have resources, they have a really good teacher, kind teacher or a counselor or someone that can give them advice on how to do it versus if they're just doing it completely on their own can make a difference as well, unfortunately. 
And that boils down to privilege too. I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, our connection back in Hong Kong. And I remember that kind of community of international, very elite type of uh, community. Um, they would hire, you know, and spend tens and thousands of dollars on these, not just tutors, but people who help with the application process and working through the essays with mm -hmm. them. Whereas, you know, your average, you know, middle range um, or lower range kind of student with lack of access has no one to guide them through this. And then they're going to be judged based on their application. And so what's framed in that, those, those, that material, those few questions is really going to be a make or break. And yes. so how does that level the playing field? You know, I didn't, I don't really see how you can break that. But like I said before, that there are parts of the application that indicates to the admissions office a, a little bit of the background. And, um, you know, of course it's, you know, I know California is an, um, you know, they, an exception, but it depends on each state. But of course, like if uh, I'll use the example of, um, you know, a female student applying for engineering, um, as soon as they, as colleges see that, they go, oh, wow, they, 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 they realize that in the STEM world and in engineering, there are very few females. And so right there, I have to be honest with you that the female student applying for engineering, they're going to get a closer read. And, and, and perhaps, you know, they'll be, I, ha I hate to say it, I mean, they want to add diversity, right? Actually, they want to add diversity to the engineering department. So perhaps that student, like if she's a female and um, African-American. Yeah, add yeah. the uh, race on top of the gender, then you're adding yes. all the kind of things that kind of tick those boxes of diversity that they need to. Yes, that they need. Or yeah. if they're um, an Asian Pacific Islander and they're applying to a school like in uh, upstate New York, yeah. how many Asia Pacific Islanders? Right are they going to receive? And as soon as the um, admissions office sees that, they're, they're like, wow, let's take a closer look at well, this application. You know, it's a really good case situation, um, but it's interesting that uh, in, in Hawaii, I had interviewed someone previously and she's from the STEM department at UH. And she said that there's such a lack of diversity. She's actually created an, um, kind of a student organization to create voice on how not only is it so um, desperately lacking of representation on the gender level, but racially, you know, for a Pacific Islander herself, she said that they have a long way to go and they're not addressing this. And so even though we say college applications are considering these things and they couldn't be potential um, perks, there is a long way to go with this. And I don't, I don't know. Um, let's take a quick break. I think we come back and let's let's tackle a little bit about this kind of um, gender racial uh, intersectional aspects that we need to kind of think about in in this whole college application process and where we as individual families and students fit into this complex and ever so competitive world of uh, college applications. Okay, so we'll be back. Yeah. Back here with educational counselor Deborah Cooney, we are talking about the complex situation in light of all the different elements boiled down to this horrible pot of uh, college applications. And uh, before the break, we mentioned 
you know, kind of the, the need for diversity and how sometimes potentially because of your racial or gender background, it all kind of adds and fits into a place where it might check some boxes, might get you places. But at the same time, you know, um, in light of COVID and, and, and all this kind of um, racial movements happening is that, is the diversity really working? And you had mentioned off air that, you know, while we're trying to support all these underprivileged uh, uh, communities, at the same time, we have to understand what's going on and how COVID's affected the institutions themselves as, as not necessarily businesses, but they have to be working and running, right? So Deborah, um, can we switch it a little bit and talk about the institution for a second first to kind of give some context to what they're struggling with in this process as well? Um, yeah, I mean, as we were, as you were mentioning, Crystal, we we're talking about the importance of diversity and how in universities they 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 love this. It's it helps with learning. It's good for the institution, but at the same time, you know, as as they're balancing in diversity, and we're talking not just about race, but we're talking about gender, we're talking about um, financial uh, need, like needs diversity, like how, you know, if students can pay or not pay, um, institutions do run on a budget. And, um, and so there are students that are like full pay, they're willing to, um, you know, try for highly selective universities, and they're willing to pay hundred percent of their tuition and you know, how, how are they looked at? Um, and there is quite a lot of debate about that too, but at the end of the day, I think most colleges, they do need students like that. You know, that's the reality. They, they need students that, and families that can help pay the tuition and keep the university operating. Um, and so that, that's the, I think the interesting dynamic and especially during COVID. But then this they, they've seen an increase in financial aid applications. Right. So this is another problem because then it gets reverts us back to the idea of privilege and who can, who can afford to do this. And, um, you know, it, the, the, the college colleges are expensive now. I mean, that's just an understatement. It's just so beyond affordable now that you a lot of people are actually this is where i'm kind of conflicted in trying to understand this is that on one hand I, I sense that a lot of people are kind of considering not opting for even college for now and working because it's just so overpriced and what are you getting out of that and what are the prospects after college at the same time you're telling me that um there's an increase in applications this year so where why is there such a contradiction Yes. Now, this is something that I think everyone is is watching and they're a little bit stunned. It's it's COVID, as we've seen, has brought the effect of some people doing very well, unfortunately, you know, doing very well. And then some people have lost their jobs. They've lost their homes and they're they're really, really suffering and need help. And it's unfortunate. But I think that we've seen this all across the country and in different industries. Like, you know, you can talk about real estate, you know, real estate, same thing. Why is there a boom in real estate? Mm. You know, that just goes against right. like what we would think would happen in a pandemic or like the stock and, kind of in the stock market. Yeah. And so there are the people with privilege and means that their, their stocks are doing well, their real estate is doing well. And, 
they can afford to send their kids to college mm -hmm. and that they can apply without financial aid. So they've actually seen an increase. Isn't this interesting? So Harvard, for example, received a 50, if, I, if I'm correct on the numbers, a 57% increase in early applications. Wow. Harvard, Yale and Penn, University of Pennsylvania, about a 47% increase in early applications. That's crazy. Is that crazy? And they said MIT received 62% increase in cool. early applications. Okay, so what does this mean in terms of acceptance rates then for them? The acceptance rates went down. Harvard had the lowest acceptance rate in their history. Oh my God. 7% seven, seven in their early round, in their, in their early round. Now, why, you know, why is that? I mean, they themselves are astonished. They're like, we can't believe we got so many applications, but um, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, some people suspect because it's ACT, SAT optional. So there are a lot of really good students out there who in a normal year um, would not, if they didn't score well, they might say, well, I'm not going to apply. But now they're like, well, I have a really good GPA. I have a, you know, a 4.0 GPA. I don't have test scores, but I might as well apply. So then they got an increase of application. This is very scary because, you know, I, I am, as a mom, am going through this process with my daughter who is applying mm -hmm. right now and is in that same pool of that increasingly competitive process. And what does that mean for their future when they don't get into kind of their ideal schools when, you know, previously it was already... <laughs> highly competitive and now it's just kind of squeezed into this like extreme level right and what does that do to um students and their well-being and because there are honestly a lot of people who are disappointed with their results and what are they because of this highly competitive situation now i think we need to address their well-being um how do people how do kids cope with this crazy competitive nature at this point yeah i mean well first of all you know as a mom, I, I can tell you that we all want the best for our children. And even though I am throwing out some some scary numbers, I'm mentioning like the most the most Harvard, Princeton, Yale. You know, these are the the very top, highly selective schools. And you know, in this country, there are over four thousand institutions. And you know, I'm a firm believer that there is a really good school for everybody everybody out there. Um, and um, we actually still don't know about the cycle. It's early, like we're talking about the early round. There's still the regular round of applications and we're still kind of monitoring and tracking what is happening for this year in, 20, in 2020. Um, it, I, I'm backtracking a little bit, but last year in of 2019, yeah. another interesting trend that happened was a lot of students, this was in March, sorry, March of 2020. So the, the March of 2020, the students from last year that found out where they were going, a lot of them got off of wait lists of universities that they probably would have never gotten off of if they had applied the year before. And this mm -hmm. is because of COVID. Right. Because what happened was a lot of students in March and April or May decided that they couldn't go. They couldn't go to the university of their choice. They couldn't go. So then they withdrew. And then the wait list opened up. And many students that would normally not get off the wait list were able to get in. 
I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That was from, from last year. We don't know what's going to happen in but, March of 2021. So another aspect I'm thinking of was the people who decided to defer because a lot of the parents going back to the financial or practical situation, like, okay, if it's going to be online, why am I paying full tuition? You know, let's wait and see mm -hmm. how this kind of like calms down and then we'll send them to real school when, when it's worth it. And so right. now you've got that on top of the increasing amount of applications, right? Yes, yes. So many dynamics at play. Yeah. So that's another so, layer, right? Yeah. And um, I, I guess, back, you know, back to your point is this is, a, this is, can be a very stressful process and there's a lot of anxiety amongst families, yeah. you know, amongst students and, and families. And that is, that is normal every year like this. Yeah. Okay. Fair you know, enough. pre COVID. Yeah. You know, you, you still might feel, feel this as well. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm a firm believer it all works out in the end. And students are gonna go to good places. Yeah, okay. and yeah, I, I really am. And, and that's what I've seen. Um, you know, they may think that Harvard or MIT is their dream school, but in reality, you know, there's a place and a time and a path for everybody. And, you know, it could be later, it could be, uh, maybe they don't go there right away, but they, or, or at all, but then they have a different path in their life and yeah. they're going to be successful. I really, you know, I'm, you know, I truly believe that. But that, that brings me to the point is questioning whether we get sucked into this whole idea and standard of what it means to be successful. Why are we all kind of driving towards these top schools? Why is that a measure of success? Why is it that we don't have more um, kind of a balanced emphasis on what the alternatives are that are equally valuable? Why is it all measured around these top schools and putting all this pressure on, on, on families who think that's the only way to get your ticket out of some kind of rut? Um, and if you don't get in, you're never going to get out of that perpetual kind of, you know, situation, you know? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's a challenge. It, it is definitely a challenge. And I think that, um, I think that you're right. I mean, there's so many, there's so many different paths. Like I can tell you right now, I have a student who is um, actually told his parents that he doesn't want to go to college. And he and his parents, they, 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 they struggled with that. And the parents were, were not happy for, um, the past year but i can tell you this student of mine is just he's amazing he 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 told his parents he didn't want to go to college because he said i want to work with my hands so mm -hmm. i want to work with my hands i want to build something and i've been so impressed with this this student he he earned his eagle scout badge he formed his own llc he, he's a senior in high school now but over the junior he formed his own llc and he started a um uh like a handyman service and he's been building decks and repairing different parts of um, his clients houses and he he started his own company he learned about uh, managing his time and buying inventory and then using his hands and and you know accounting like the whole running a business he did on his own right and he told and you know and 
he's a senior now and you know we we met recently and i asked him you know what's your plan and he said i'm still you know i i just um you know i know a four-year college is not for me it's like i don't want to be in the classroom he goes i want he's like i might go and become an aviation mechanic he goes i want to learn how to take apart airplanes and build them and I think his parents have come around and, and they're actually very proud of him. And I wish we could see more of that, yes. you know, and, and, you know, cause four year college, you know, we're talking about Harvard on one end and then we're, and then on the other end, we're talking about maybe four year college is not for everybody. So how do we need to kind of offer that thought though? Is it the responsibility of high schools to the counselors to kind of open up that, um, that potential? and encouraging students who feel they're not kind of cut out for this higher education system. You know, right now we don't have that. It's not even like an, an option. Most all, most parents will think, okay, you got to go to college in order to, you know, have a possibility of any kind of success. But how do we change that? Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I've actually been thinking about that a lot, especially, you know, here on you know on Oahu I'm just there's I wish that there were more vocational schools trade schools here yeah you know because not everyone needs to go and study Aristotle or sit in a classroom you know they just they just don't and they and if there were more options trade schools vocational programs I know we do have some here of course but like if there were more options, then it's all kind of interconnected. Then high schools and counselors can direct students that way right. and provide and tell them that there's options out there, yeah. kind of like they have in Europe. Yeah, you know, like in Germany, trade yeah. schools are really big. Yeah, yeah. It would be great to get a certification in carpentry. Yeah, exactly. I mean those skills are vital and and in a way i i don't know what the numbers are but you think about the lack of skilled kind of tradesmen it's a dying art people don't know how to fix things anymore and uh we 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 belittle it because this whole again going back to the concept of higher education has uh really become the the standard for success, a measure of success, and we see it crumbling, and we see the high exorbitant um, tuition kind of really impacting a lot of families who don't have that access to get into it, and then um, not seeing potential in, in their mm -hmm. kids if they don't do that, which is very sad. I think we need to take one more quick break. I'd love to come back and talk. Um, maybe you can share a little bit more of some specific students and their process. Um, and even as parents and how they can help support them and just coping with stress overall in this light of COVID times and just uh, financially straining times and just uncertainty in general. So don't go away. We're talking about really important aspects of uh, the process of college applications and even the value of it, all right? I'm back here with Deborah Cooney, educational counselor, talking about all the different intersecting elements in this kind of process of thinking about the future for students applying for colleges and people who don't have access and people who are overwhelmed by this process in light of COVID. So Deborah, let's talk a little bit about the student process. Um, again, my daughter is going through it right now. And so I have a very kind of firsthand uh, experience with this, but I think there are a lot of families out there who really 
maybe they don't even communicate with their kids uh, about this process and the kids just lock themselves in the rooms and just do it and then it's done and then you come back and then you're like oh what'd you get into and then and then it's like oh this is gonna make or break your future you know this is it's a horrible pressure on these kids and so can you share a little bit about um, processes maybe based on the applications that you are working through and pick out some pointers that we are worthy of discussion? Sure, sure. Yes, um, yeah, this process can be quite overwhelming for, for uh, students and parents, but if I could share a couple of tips, um, and you know, and these tips apply whether we're in a COVID year or back to, back to normal, you know. Um, in general, we have to have confidence in 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 our children. Like I think our our, our children are um, very capable, and they don't always share with parents, you know, what they're thinking. But you know, behind the closed doors, like you have, you said, like they might have their door closed and they were on their computer. I think they 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 are thinking about their their future and like what they want to what they want to do, and they do hear parents, teachers, counselors, they do hear us. Um, and they just kind of need their own time to process what, what, what they're thinking and they're still developing. So, you know, they, they are exploring, they're exploring, you know, when you're 16, 17, you're still exploring. So my advice to parents is to like, step back, you know, give them some space to um, explore have them, you know, but if you feel like they need some guidance, you know, have them talk to their teachers, talk to counselors. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, our jobs are just to, our job as, as um, adults is just to introduce, introduce, um, you know, opportunities, resources to them that they might not be aware of, they, they, they might not be aware of. So like for, you know, students here, they should, they should, um, in high school, they should, um, talk to their teachers, to go to their school, uh, you know, find out what's available. That's what I would always say. Start there. Start there with what's in front of you. Um, and then, you know, talk to their peers even. Sometimes their peers will, will give them lots of good advice on, um, you know, on where to uh, start. Um, um, in terms of, of like careers, I think that a lot of times students, you know, they, they don't know for sure, but they, they have a good idea. Like I just mentioned previously about one of my students who like knew he was good with his hands. You know, he's just like knew it. He's like, mom, I can't be in a classroom. I need to do something physical and with my hands. Like, I think students know deep down, like if they're, if there's something that they're good at, like, are they good at math? Are they good at science? Do they love the outdoors? If they love the outdoors, that's where they should be spending their time. And that's where they're, they're going to develop their interest. Um, so as a college counselor or an educational counselor, you would work with them to try to help them kind of ask those questions to let them figure out what's important to them, right? Um, yes. But yes. you know, to give an example again, back to my daughter and her conflict. So she wants to do dance, but she wants to live, uh, experience culture in a foreign country, specifically in, in in China. But going selecting a school that's good for culture may not be good for dance, and so she has to choose. And and is that compromise something that's going to be, you know, devastating to her because she is actually opting for one and 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 potentially reducing that path for the other, which are equally strong in her mind. So how do you help or how do kids, um, how do they 
how do they strategize and really kind of come to decisions that may greatly affect their future or maybe it doesn't i mean there's kind of like yeah that. yeah i mean so every every person has their own situation like you have some students that don't have a clue what they want to do and then you have other students like like you mentioned your, your your daughter who sounds like she has so many interests that she doesn't know where she should focus right and so you know that's that's another another challenge for her um and you know as as adults we we know this that you know life is there's different paths there's a, there's a journey it doesn't all have to be at once there's going to be other parts in her in her life where she's going to be able to explore um, her her interests like you mentioned that she she likes dance she likes travel and experiencing different cultures um, you know of course ideally we could find a college out there that offers everything um, <laughs> that offers everything but if there you know if there isn't then then I guess the key is to help her figure out and hopefully that she'll get there that maybe she it, she doesn't do them both simultaneously. It's one one at a time. It's it's one at a time, right? She can um, travel and explore. Or she can dance first, and then later in her life, incorporate ways to travel and 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 uh, explore different cultures. I mean, I think I think even the two of us we could probably talk about our own interests through our lives and how we've been able to to reach our goals and our in our in our dreams but it all didn't happen at once what are you what are your thoughts about gap year oh that's a that's a really good question so so this year i think colleges have seen an increase not dramatic but they've definitely seen an increase in students taking gap years or asking for a deferral and rightly so because um you know my my own son is taking a a leave of absence. He's a sophomore in college and he spent almost two semesters online and he said, mom, you know, I hate this online learning. You know, I'm, I just, it's not for me and I'm not doing well, I'm not doing well in my classes. I just, you know, I'm not enjoying my learning. And so, so he decided to take a leave of absence and he won't go back to school until the fall. He won't, he won't be joining this January. So, uh, you know, gap years um, in the U.S. aren't, you know, it's not as common, but it's becoming more and more popular. Like in, in Europe, that's very common. It's in their culture. You apply to college and then once you get in, you just say, I'd like to take a gap year and the university says fine. And in the U.S., it's, you know, we, we usually ask, okay, well, what are you going to do with your time? And I think that's the challenge. A lot of students that have asked for gap years, they have to know what they want to do. Like, are they going to work? And then right now during COVID, can you find a job? You know, what are you going to do with your time if you're not if you're not in school? So that's why I think that there is a, a increase in gap year requests and deferrals, but it's not it's not a dramatic increase from what I've heard. Yeah, no, I mean, again, it's just another layer of all these complications. Sorry if it's noisy outside. Um, we have a lot of distractions outside too. Um, I also wanted to bring in, you know, we talk about eliteness, we talk about privilege all the time. And, you know, there is that kind of whole recent surge in the, um, I guess it's a, would you say it's rather uh, controversial that 
the Asians were fighting against or the kind of like anti-discrimination aspect saying, okay, well, you're taking in all the Asians because they have all the good grades. So what about like our, our white folks being kind of <laughs> discriminated because of them treated in their numbers as not being able to fight with these ever so hardworking Asian applicants. So what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, we're going to talk about so-called diversity and the colleges are trying very hard to navigate um, how to select and how to, con con you know, what, what constitutes diversity and, and what, it, what do you think about the kind of the Caucasian population of their criticisms of this so-called um, anti-discrimination based on kind of a reverse, you know, yeah, <laughs> interesting topic. I mean, you know, as an Asian American, um, but also, uh, you know, a college um, counselor, I I might have a different view about it. I, um, you know, I I know that Harvard. We talk about Harvard because Harvard is always in the news. Yes, but um, they had that recent lawsuit against them for discriminating against. Asian Americans, and actually, the Asian American group that sued lost, and Harvard won. And I actually, um, you know, support that decision because um, Harvard actually over thirty percent of students that attend Harvard actually are Asian of Asian descent. It's over thirty percent. Yeah, that's high. and. Um, I'm a strong believer of diversity across the board. I mean, like, I think, you know, as a parent, I'm speaking personally, I mean, as a parent, you know, I want my my kids to attend a college that they're exposed to many different cultures. You know, um, students from Latin America and Europe and Africa. And I think that um, even though they are Asian American, like, I wouldn't want them to attend a university that is like 80% Asian American. I mean, I know there's the laws, but then there's also just like what I imagine what a classroom would look like. And I know yeah. that Harvard and other institutions have to navigate that, you yeah. know, and they, they're, they're, and maybe what the way that they did it or their processes weren't, um, done well or could be improved. So hopefully that lawsuit at least brought some change in how they actually evaluate applicants. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, because um, yeah. they, they were criticized for some of their like rating systems, right. like how they rate candidates. You wonder how transparent that stuff is anyway. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's another topic. But what yeah. I'm wondering is what does this do to the Asian Americans who are already kind of these top-notch academic striving families who now in light of this kind of um, new diversity claim that's challenging the over kind of population of Asian American representation, are they going to work even harder or? No, I, well, I, what I think is they need to open up their minds. Again, like we were discussing, how do you define success? Does that mean if you go to Harvard, you're successful and you don't go to Harvard, you're not? You know, there's so many good institutions across the U.S. and the world. And, and I, I know many successful people in my life who I think are successful and they didn't attend Harvard and that's, or Yale. 
how do is this going back to our original conversation about what what constitutes success and how does one educate and why are we always kind of um, using this higher education and the top-notch universities as our standard why yeah. you know and why can't we open up our eyes to uh, redefining what success means what is your child good at and what are their talents and passions and how do we support that so that they can be the best at what they want to be and not what the kind of education system uh, kind of you know defines for us right exactly exactly I mean you know, again, I, you know, I go back to talking about one of my current students who has decided that he's not going to a four-year college. He's looking at community college or two-year associate's degree, you know, to, to become an aviation maintenance mechanic. I would love to see where he is 10 years and 20 years from now. This kid is going to be so, in my mind, successful. I bet he's going to be running his own business. He's such a people person. He's going to have great skills, and he's going to have, um, you know, other people working for him. He's a. I could see him as a family man. You know, there's many different ways to define success. No, that's such a great example, and that I want to leave on that positive note. So, um, do you have any other kind of like uh, final tips for for students who are contemplating universities or not, or uh, just families and communities and everyone who's listening out there about this kind of uh, pressure and uh, overemphasis on on higher education? And just what what are your thoughts? Final thoughts for people to kind of look at this process and what's it make sense of it. Yeah, so, um, you know, I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, talk to people, talk to people in your community, um, seek out resources that are in front of you. Um, and as you talk to people, they will provide um, ideas and options. Um, you know, and again, be true to yourself. And, um, you know, if I talk about a specifics about, you know, the application itself, you know, they ask questions. There's a lot of questions on uh, on the form. You know, short answer questions, and they ask you to write usually a, a personal statement. Uh, the best personal statements that I've read are authentic and genuine. The student is able to communicate who they are, and um, you know when it becomes too um, like I've seen essays where they just kind of regurgitate their accomplishments. That actually isn't interesting to the admissions reader. They want to know who that student is. And, and again, I say be tr true to who you are because there's a college out there that is going to, to like you for who you are. And they they're gonna, and if they believe that you're a good fit for their institution, um, then that's a good match. And I truly believe that that student, that person will be happy there. And um, and that is my my advice. Try not to like create a persona that is not you. And um, and I just think that that kind of situation later down the road, you see all kinds of, you know, maybe the student's not happy, they end up transferring and it just start with who you are. That's my, my no, advice, I'm glad be you genuine. Have that because, you know, just adding my own two cents in and, and an overall overarching kind of uh, a look at this is that everyone's checking those boxes 
on the application. And yes, there are so many kind of high achieving um, students who do have perfect scores and, and perfect CVs and perfect uh, community service. They just, everything is perfect on paper, but everybody has that same piece of paper. So what's gonna distinguish you from all the other perfect papers, right? Exactly. Uh, it, it cancels each other out. If I were on a panel of education people, I would hate to see, oh, another boring high achiever <laughs> who's well, probably exactly. groomed. They've been groomed and you can smell it, you know, smells like privilege. So no. I also wanted to, sorry, to add one more thing is how do we kind of um, address uh, the underprivileged communities who don't have all those perfect things on paper and, and what does it mean to be perfect anyway? And so what are some tips for people who think it's too far reaching or um, how do we kind of um, address this for uh, marginal communities who feel they need to kind of uh, enter this game, if you will, you know? Yeah, I mean, this is the challenge. This is the real challenge. Um, I you know, for any reader, uh, listeners out there that feel that, that they need extra support, again, I would, I would start with it, maybe a teacher, a teacher or a mentor, somebody that they look up to. And I hope that they have someone in their lives that they could talk to, um, you know, about their potential, you know, ambitions or, or ideas about, um, about college or, um, careers. And, um, you know, I would start there. I mean, even here, I think all, all the public schools here, they have a counseling office. Now, whether or not it's fully funded and tons of resources, they must have some capabilities and that they, I would have them start there. And then there are a lot of free resources online, of course, you know, through College Board and, um, and you know, government websites, there's lots of free resources, but I know it's just the challenge of finding them. So I really hope that they can find an adult or someone that they can trust mm -hmm. and that can, that can guide them, them through it. And maybe also see if there's any students in their schools that a year older that went through something similar that they could talk to as well. If it's not an adult, maybe a, a, you know, a former student. Well, this is where I yeah. want to do a shout out for, you know, university students out there who are listening or people in the academia who have the resources and the experience to maybe kind of come out and, and, and be of help, be like a mentor to people and reach out to, if you see potential in kids to go and guide them because sometimes they lack resources and your voice could be so important and so supportive and so meaningful, right? So, That's a really good tip. I mean, university students, like, in you know, if they can reach out and if they want to be a mentor to younger students. Yeah. And then even for university students, you know, maybe they're going through a career transition or um, possible educational transition too. You know, I'm sure that there are resources, um, you know, on campus where they can, uh, you know, reach out. And, and there's a career center. Mm -hmm. There's, um, you know, there, there's advisors. That they can speak to as well and and start with what's in front of one you know all it takes is like a yeah. team of just passionate people who want to help out um yeah privileged people so wow deborah i mean i know we kind of opened up a can of worms and we knew that 
this was going to be the case, but I really appreciate you kind of helping to unpack all the kind of uh, the, the complexities with college applications and the pros and cons of, of, of how we navigate this system and where we sit in our privilege or lack thereof and, and how to redefine what it means to be successful to ourselves. I think that's really important. So I appreciate all your efforts. And if anybody needed information from you, um, how can they maybe find you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if anyone wants to reach out, I'm, you know, I'm happy to, to speak with them and, um, you know, provide any um, advice or resources that they may be looking for. Uh, probably the best way to reach me would be my uh, email address, which is uh, dyccollegeplanning at gmail.com. Okay. Great, Deborah. That's excellent. Thank you so much. And let's all ride this wave out together. And we yeah. leave this end of the year with positivity. Um, you know, challenges create very, very interesting people. And so we are we're getting moving ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Crystal.